I am not your host, Chris Cutler. He'll be here any minute now. I'm just the engineer. And this is Probes Episode 21. In the last four programmes, we've focused on the incorporation into domestic contexts of exotic instruments and the significant reverberations this engendered throughout the musical community. But today, the shuffling of cultural codes is a commonplace and attracts little comment. So where should we locate what is now called world music in our history of probes and appropriations? I think on the margins, and I'll try to explain why. This series has set out to explore some of the strategies, experiments and investigations through which musicians and composers have tested ways of extending or redefining the vocabulary or syntax of music. I've taken European understandings and paradigms as my starting point because theirs is the history I'm attempting to unravel, and also because it's the only history I know. Other musical cultures may be deeper, more subtle or more eloquent, but they are also, to us, more opaque. It will always be a question, if they attract us, why they attract us. It's certainly not because we understand them. So what interests me about our engagement with ideas or instruments from other cultures is the way we deploy them in pursuit of the reinvigoration of our own aesthetic and expressive endeavours. What signifies is the way the things that we assimilate are changed, and how they in turn change us. That's why the idea of world music, as distinct from the inexorable mutation of local music through a slow process of assimilation and contagion, is such a vexed issue. After all, rock music is world music now. Western orchestral music is world music. All music circulating as commodities is effectively a world music. But that's not what the people who use this term want it to mean. In fact, these are meanings they want to exclude. So what do they want to mean? The term itself was first coined by the ethnomusicologist Robert E. Brown, who believed that peace and understanding would follow if the peoples of the earth could share their many different musics. To facilitate this, he established in the early 1960s both undergraduate and doctoral world music programmes, inviting musicians from abroad to teach and perform at his faculty at the Wesleyan University in Connecticut. This was an initiative wholly in tune with the spirit of the times, since, in the world outside his institution, the same cross-fertilisation was already happening in practice, especially in the jazz community, and most strongly in the avant-garde black jazz community, which by then had become a significant force in the integration of instruments, aesthetics and philosophies from other cultures. And they were also, especially in their response to the study of Indian classical music, unashamedly asserting a newly discovered spiritual dimension in the coming together of disparate cultures. Love is a sacred word. Love is the name of God. The entire universe 
One is one, and one is to know. And to know is to create. And to create is to know. By the late 1950s, ethnographic research was no longer restricted to a handful of academics and musicologists, but had been placed firmly in the public domain by specialist record labels like UNESCO, Okora, Chant du Monde and Folkways. Once obscure and precious, now recordings of the world's music were circulating freely and musicians from all disciplines, including the emerging body of non-idiomatic improvisers, were listening and being inspired by it. Open your ears and your eyes and you're influenced, as Bob Dylan once remarked. Motives may have differed, study, pleasure, general interest, research, but the results were everywhere, in modal structures, drones, rhythms, the use of exotic colour, new performance techniques, samples and the use of unfamiliar instruments. Over the next 30 years, both the record market and the tour circuit for non-Western musics grew until, by the mid-1980s, all the threads came together under the label World Music, which was now understood primarily as a marketing category that brought folk, ethnic and non-Western art music together with a variety of cross-cultural hybrids loosely predicated on a vaguely formed paralinguistic notion of universal musicality. Had something changed in 20 years? I offer two observations. First, that at the level of the market on which it mostly operates, this is little more than a Darwinian selection system that rewards those who produce whatever westernised ears find most amenable and second, that the de facto universal musical language that emerges tends to gather around a dominant Western norm, just more colourful and exotic, and definitely more virtuosic. I don't say this is a good or a bad thing. As with all cross-pollinations, important new hybrids have emerged. However, it's arguable that where cross-cultural sports like reggae or salsa or jazz or the blues grew directly out of local communities and served those communities, world music in its current form is more extraterritorial and predicated too strongly not on a community but on a marketplace. The negative case would be to say it's not a culture because it has no root that it doesn't deal in innovation but novelty, that it's a projection rather than an eruption, and that it grows from its surface and not from within. The positive case would be to argue that yes, a new extraterritorial culture really is emerging from this great coming together, and that it really does represent something meaningful and real. What is unarguable is that the world music brand has created a forum in which unusually skilled musicians are able to present music that ranges from great to mediocre, exactly, in fact, like every other kind of music. World music has become like Franz Kafka's great nature theatre of Oklahoma, in which there is a place reserved for everyone. I could easily have presented my next example as a folk instrument, 
since its use and evolution is as grassroots as it gets. Or I could have called it an invented instrument, since it didn't exist before 1930. But because of the way we generally interpret it, I'll include it here as an exotic instrument. Born in Trinidad out of necessity when other forms of percussion were banned, the steel pan was typically made from a discarded oil drum, cut and hammered to produce a range of chromatic pitches. It was built in families, bass to soprano, and assembled in popular orchestras to play music for dancing. And sometimes, in more exotic mood, it might also interpret Western art repertoire. Here, for instance, is Camille Saint-Saëns' Aquarium, part of his 1886 suite Carnival of the Animals. The original was scored for two pianos, flute, violin, viola, cello and glass harmonica. And just as the instrument recognises art, so art recognises the instrument, especially in the form of the concerto, of which there are several. Here's an extract from one of them by the American composer Jan Bach. It's played on this 1995 recording by the Paganini of the Steel Pan, Liam Teague.
It's in more sympathetic company here, alongside a piano, percussion and Senegalese chora. This is the American pan player Andy Naral, making a guest appearance with the all-African chora jazz band. The song, Oye Como Va, is Puerto Rican. the different context, here's the great Van Dyke Parks, who uses steel pans a lot, usually quite subliminally mixed in with harps and harmonicas to achieve subtle shades of orchestral colour. This is After the Ball from the 1984 album Jump. German composer Hans Werner Henzer used steel pans in a great number of his works, 
employing them routinely in his often enormous percussion sections. Here they are in a quartet piece, El Cimarron, The Runaway Slave, which is scored for guitar, flute, percussion and voice. Damals haben die Herren die Schwarzen verkauft, als wären es Ferkel. Ich auch. Plantage fort, ich sag mal. Mit zehn Jahren lief ich zum ersten Mal herauf und davon. The French spectralist Gérard Griset also made frequent use of the steel drum. Here it is on his 1978 work, Quatre Chants pour franchir le seuil.
Obviously, the more connected the world has become, the less viable it is to approach it as a disparate set of exotic locations. Back in the late 19th century, Western instruments and Western music were as alien to Indonesians as the gamelan was to Parisians. And it must be said that non-European cultures assimilated European culture far better and far more quickly than we assimilated theirs. But a century on, after two world wars, 60 years of routine air travel, the establishment of planet-wide markets and the growth of universal mass communications, the globalisation of music is now pretty far advanced. And as the music that surrounds them becomes increasingly mediated and dissociated from discernible human action, listeners today seem to be less curious and less easily impressed than they were 50 years ago. Sound coming out of loudspeakers is not unlike CGI on cinema screens. It makes us believe that the impossible is normal and it kills curiosity where a great cinematic shot would have been a puzzle and a wonder because we could identify with the human ingenuity that managed to set it up. Now the chances are it's just computer graphic imaging and that belongs to the world of machines, not to the world of human achievement. Don't get me wrong, the results empower human imagination, but we process these results in a different way. Playing accurately at speed is one thing, Playing slowly and then speeding up the recording is another, and programming the whole thing from scratch is something else again, and each step on this journey diminishes our collective engagement as a species, privileging result over process, consumption over production, and selection over intention. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, the shadow. In the fields of art and pop, Japanese instruments have been probed mainly not by Western composers, but by Japanese. American gunboat diplomacy forcibly opened Japan to trade in the mid-19th century, the country had been closed to the West for over 200 years. Western orchestras, funded mostly by private patrons, appeared for the first time in the late 1870s. Fifty years later, they were being run by universities, radio stations and large department stores. And by the late 1950s, Western music, Western instruments and Western tuning had been embraced and mastered to the extent that on a technical level, Japanese composers and performers working in the Western tradition were the equals of any other nation in what had become de facto a world music. Toru Takamitsu, for instance, had studied Western composition, 
worked in electronic and tape studios, and was involved with groups like Fluxus and the New York School of Composers. In other words, he was working at the leading edge of the international art avant-garde. He has said himself that it was largely in response to John Cage's interest in the Zen branch of Buddhism and Japanese art in general, that he turned back to examine his own culture and his first attempt to bring traditional Japanese instruments, in this case the shakuhachi and the biwa, into the Western Orchestra, was the immediately successful November Steps, premiered in 1967. Since the biwa and the shakuhachi belong to different traditions and are never normally played together, Takamitsu had first to develop two systems of graphic notation, one for each, and then synchronise these with the western stave notation used to animate the orchestra. He'd already sketched out the method in Eclipse, written the year before, only for the biwa and shakuhachi. Six years after the premiere of November Steps, Takamitsu wrote Autumn Into the Fall After a Little While, also for Biwa, Shakuhachi and Orchestra. And I'll play a little of that, since it's less well-known and I think more successful than November Steps.
Unhappily, there seems to be no existing recording of the piece Stockhausen wrote for the Imperial Gagaku Orchestra in 1977. But I can play a little of Takamitsu's In an Autumn Garden, also written for the Gagaku Orchestra two years later. Here's a stunningly persuasive work by Yoshiro Vladimir Irino, the first Japanese composer to use Schoenberg's 12-tone system. This was written in 1973 for orchestra and two shakuhachis. I'm only sorry I can't play more of it. He called it Wandlungen, which in German means transformations.
And here's the British shakuhachi player, Clive Bell, a long-time student of the instrument, which he uses only in non-traditional settings, but from a deep grounding in traditional technique. What is true of Japan is also true of China. The most intriguing work with indigenous instruments is being done by Chinese composers using modified Western compositional forms. Here's a piece by Tan Dun, who's already well known in the West. He's a composer we'll meet again in several other contexts. This extract is from his concerto for string orchestra and zeng. A zeng, like the Japanese koto, is a species of zither with movable bridges.
And there's a substantial body of contemporary chamber music that has been written only for Chinese traditional instruments. This, for instance, is from Zhu Lin's impressive Transcendence for Seven Performers, recorded in 2004. This is Chen Yi with a solo piece for pipa, which is essentially a four-string lute.
By contrast, here's some Western writing for the Peeper, an instrument that, interestingly, several people have probed, including Terry Riley, Philip Glass and Lou Harrison. This extract is from Lou Harrison's Concerto for Peeper with String Orchestra, which is very recent, written in 1997. And here's an extract from Terry Riley's 2008 work, Cusp of Magic, a 50-minute marathon for Peeper and String Quartet. Thank you. 
we can see several possible approaches that might be taken toward exotic instruments. Native players, obviously, approach from the inside, from a position of inherited and acquired cultural knowledge. Outsiders can only take this trajectory on the basis of deep study, which does occasionally happen. On the other hand, being inside a culture makes it impossible to approach an instrument freely, since the routines and reflexes and concepts already written into their bodies can never be unlearned, they can only be resisted. Insiders and outsiders, therefore, ask different questions, see different potentials and make different contributions to the evolution of new musical practices. And then there is what I might call analogue thinking. That's where one approaches a new instrument through an awareness of its similarities to an instrument one already knows. For instance, George Harrison's initial approach to the sitar was to treat it like a guitar, with an amazingly different sound. A drum, at root, is something you hit. A shakuhachi is a kind of flute. A santur is essentially a zither, and so on. We heard the way Takeshi Terauchi approached the electric guitar through his familiarity with the biwa, so you can imagine how a pipa player would approach a western lute. Here then we have another line of approach, not immersing oneself in a culture, but finding a personal relationship to an instrument. This is how Heiner Goebbels, for instance, approached the erhu, a one-string Chinese violin. As a former cellist, he used the techniques he'd learned without needing to take account of the culture from which the erhu came or of the orthodox techniques required to play it formally. That means he could more or less start from scratch and find out how someone who thinks the way he thinks would use the instrument to make sounds that work. Here he is, playing on Todo Dia, taken from the 1986 Casiba album, Perfect Worlds.
program we'll hear what else has been assimilated from the world's warehouse of instruments I'm Chris Cutler this has been probes mm-hmm.